Today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out, and David went out to fight. David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him and Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Thanks, Amber, a.k.a. Bay. That's my rib. That's my wife. Amen. Thanks for the read. I so fear getting up here without explaining that and just saying, thanks, sweetie. And then everyone like, what? You know, <laughs> let's pray. Hey, gracious Father, thank you for this opportunity to go to your word today. Uh, thank you for the grace that you have given us to get us to this point of the day. I pray, Father God, that you would allow um, your word to be front and center in our hearts and our minds. I pray, Father God, that you would physically if we're tired, give us energy to hear that you would spiritually, Lord, wake us up, um, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is well tended to so that your, your, your seat will get there. I pray, Father God, that you would give me a clarity of speech and focused mind for the sake of your glory. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you. I desperately need to, to hear from you even as I preach your word. So speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. All right, well, we're continuing our series on the life of David. And um, when we look at the story, as we'll be overviewing kind of chapters 8 through 20 today, um, I'm just amazed at how much is in here. Um, the biblical narrative is just written in such a rich way, such great detail, so many fascinating uh, characters. And it's funny because sometimes I talk to people and, and sometimes in my own heart, I approach the word of God when my heart is cold as if it is just like a, a boring book or just a regular book. But I was reminded this week as I was reading the word, just how awesome God's word is. Just how powerful the narrative is. Just how well-written it is. And if you uh, don't regularly read your Bible or if you've never read the Bible, I want to encourage you to read it. Um, it is 
uh, well-written. Um, it is impactful. It has all kind of storylines weaving through it. And so the narrative on David's life is simple. He was a young boy who was a shepherd. And then one day he is uh, called and anointed by a prophet uh, by the name of Samuel to be the future king of Israel. So he goes from boy to shepherd to future king to warrior. We looked at last week how the Lord used him to defeat uh, Goliath and how uh, how big that was and how all of Israel would, would come behind him and, and cheer him on. And today we're going to see how he goes from this warrior, in essence, um, to a fugitive. Now, for the next uh, several chapters in the story of 1 Samuel, David is a fugitive. Went from being anointed as king to being a fugitive on the run, fearing his very life. His very life. Most biblical historians say that this span of time that David is a fugitive is almost 10 years. 10 years. And what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that you've been called by God to lead his people and everything seems great and you're winning all these victories and you're loved? People are writing songs about you. But at the same time, you're a fugitive and running for your life. What do you do in your own life where you can see God's work and his beauty and the ways that he's blessing, but you're also living with with pain and brokenness and disappointment? Well, what we want to do today is first, I just want to walk you through two kind of main overarching themes that we see in today's narrative, specifically chapter 18 and chapter 19. And the first is just to see that David is a man that is deeply loved by people and by God, deeply loved by people and by God. Um, however, there is one person who, who does not love him. So this theme of David being loved is uh, throughout uh, chapter 18. We see that his soldiers love him. Uh, David is a, a shepherd turned into a warrior, and his soldiers love him. And in verse 5, it says that, that the troops are pleased with him rising to power. In verse 16, it says that all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. David was a warrior and his soldiers loved him. Their loyalty was growing stronger and stronger. In fact, in 2 Samuel, uh, we read these words about uh, David's soldiers. It says, so the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistines' lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. In 2 Samuel, this is later on in David's life. David is fighting the Philistines once again. And we see that three men, three of his men love him so much that they go behind enemy lines. They draw water and they come back to find David just to give him a cup of water. I mean, the man was loved. But perhaps maybe the reason why people loved him is because though he was this warrior and this, this future king, he was, he was humble. The text says in 2 Samuel that he refuses to drink the water out of humility, out of the, the fact that they just sacrificed their life to him. He, he didn't have this, this attitude at that time of entitlement, but one of brokenness, like, wow, I'm not even worthy to drink this water. His men loved him. Then his wife loved him, McCall. McCall is one of Saul's daughters, and this is a major theme um, in these chapters. In verse 20, it says, now Saul's daughter, McCall, was in love with David, and when he told Saul about it, it pleased him. Right. So she is in love with David. Um, 
Saul uh, is going to give McCall to David. The text goes on to tell us why. The reason he's giving David his daughter, in essence, is because he wants to set David up to die. Um, he, he, he thinks that by marrying his daughter and if he makes, uh, puts things together the right way, that David, David's going to die. And why does he want David dead? He wants David dead because his popularity, he has the loyalty of his soldiers, right? And that's when things kind of get a little weird in the story. If you read on in chapter 19, starting at verse 11, you'll see that uh, Saul basically tells David, uh, I'm sorry, verse chapter 18, uh, Saul basically tells David, that if he wants to marry his uh, daughter, that he has to go and kill some Philistines and come back with 104 skins, 104 skins. All right. That's really weird. <laughs> and some of you are like, well, you should hear what my father-in-law made me do. Like, that's weird, <laughs> bro. That's another level weird, right? But God's hand is with David and he goes and not only does he kill 100, he kills 200 of them, 200 of them. So in this text, we see that David, like, man, he's had a hard life in his narrative, right? Uh, Saul is after him. Things aren't going his way. But you want to know who had the, the roughest job in his narrative? Whoever had to count those foreskins out. Seriously. All right. Anyway, so McCall loves David, and he ends up winning David, uh, winning McCall from Saul because of his, essentially, um, the Lord's hand is with him. The Lord is with him in battle. He uh, reigns victorious. McCall's love for him goes so deep. Saul is trying to kill him in chapter 19. And one day Saul kind of brings, uh, tells some men to, to kind of go on a secret mission. And he gets a handful of men and they go and they try to, to kill David. Um, his wife is very shrewd. Um, she tells him that he is sick. She then takes a, an idol. It's a whole nother sermon. Uh, a Jewish woman with an idol in her house, and she puts the idol in place of where David would, would be asleep, and she makes it look like David is asleep, and they lower David out of a window, down the wall, and David is able to, to skip. And Saul comes to his daughter when he realizes that he tricked her and says, what are you doing? Why are you letting my enemy escape? And she's very shrewd. She said, well, you know, after all, that's David. I feared for my life. I had to do what he had to say, but she loves David so much so that she's willing to risk her life and, and puncture her relationship with her own father. David is a man that is deeply loved. Not only is he loved by his soldiers, not only is he loved by McCall. We read in this text that he is, he is loved by Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is an important character throughout David's story. We read in chapters uh, one through three that, that John, uh, verses one through three that Jonathan is, is Saul's son, and that Jonathan uh, wants to co is committed to, to David. It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as he loved himself. Verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So Saul's son, oldest son, who is next in line to be king, shows amazing maturity and love for David in that. Rather than fight for kingship as he sees David rising to popularity and importance in Israel, rather fight for that kingship, he relinquishes it and commits his life to him, gives his life up for him. It's constantly playing this kind of role of advocate and mediator between Saul and between David. It's an amazing picture of sacrifice. David is deeply loved. 
But there's one man who just can't stand David, and that's Saul. And I've said it over and over. Why, why doesn't Saul like David? He doesn't like David because he's jealous of David. So, right, David beats Goliath and wins uh, this, this battle, and now he's going to war, and God's hand is with him. Whoever he fights, wherever he goes, there's victory. And you know what happens in, in, kinda, in, in the culture when someone rises to popularity like that, right? What happens? People make songs about him. And so people started to make songs about, about David and Saul. And we read this song in verse 7. These women, they sang these words, Saul has slain his thousand and David his tens of thousands. Now, they probably weren't trying to draw a wedge between Saul and David. They're just accurately portraying what happens. After all, Saul is a king. He's not going to war as much as David. David is a warrior. He's in the trenches. He's fighting. And they're pointing out, yes, Saul, the Lord used him to fight thousands. They're probably saying, but David tens of thousands. But this angers Saul. This infuriates him. Verse 8 says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Listen to what he says. What more can he get but my kingdom? I love verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a close watch on David. To see Saul walking past David doing this. I'm watching you. I'm watching you. Right? And so we see that Saul is jealous, and at the end of the day, this jealousy is rooted in fear. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he departed from Saul. So Saul is sensing that the Lord is not with him and that God's hand is on David. His anointing is on David, that David is chosen to take over this kingship. And Saul is is very aware of what has happened. He's very aware of his disobedience. He's very aware of the fact that he reached and tore Samuel's robe. When Samuel did not do what he wanted him to do, the prophet's robe, he's very aware of this, and he sees, at the same time, God blessing this young God, David, and it infuriates him. It infuriates him so much that he he begins to make plans to take David out. He He doesn't want him to live. I mean, jealousy and envy and bitterness, it's a dangerous thing. First, we think we have it under control, but then it controls us. We see in this text, in chapter 18, verse 11, that Saul throws a spear at David twice. We see that Saul calls and commands um, over uh, David to be a commander over thousands, uh, simply hoping that he would get killed. We see that David, Saul puts David in harm's way with the Philistines, asking for 104 skins, hoping that, uh, again, they would kill him. He orders Jonathan and, and Jonathan's men to kill David. He throws slings and, and spears, I'm sorry, spears at David multiple times, three times in two chapters, trying to, trying to take him out. This is where David finds himself. And so the point of this passage is really looking and, and seeing that, listen, God anointed David. God called David to be king. And you would think that everything would go well after that for David. He would come into his kingship and, and he would be this great king that God has called him to be. But that's not what we see in this narrative. That God calls David, yes, to be king, but but before David is going to be crowned king, David has to suffer. David goes through immense persecution. For 10 years, 10 years, David goes through trial as a fugitive, fearing his life. What do we do with that? 
How do we apply that to our own lives as we think through this narrative as God's children, someone whom God has chosen? We look at this narrative and we conclude that God has a plan for our life. Like David, our life will be filled with both beauty and brokenness, both beauty and brokenness. David has experienced his beauty. He has went from obscurity to to being a shepherd in the field, to being overlooked by his brothers and by his, his father, to being anointed as king. He's experienced the Holy Spirit empowering him to do more than he ever thought he would do in his life. He he defeats Goliath. He builds relationships with people and has loyal soldiers. This is beautiful. God is taking his life and allowing beauty to, to come. God is with them and for him and blessing him. But yet at the same time, there is brokenness. I mean, essentially, his king is... It's trying to murk him, trying to take him out. You think your job is bad. Like David's just playing music one day and there's a spear. I don't know what David was thinking, but he came back. And he's playing music another day. And Saul and him is on good terms. All of a sudden, Saul looks at him. You know what? I don't like it. Right? And then he's running from his life. It's like a scene out of the Born Identity, the Born series. Like everywhere he goes, Saul has people there. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking about the old Terminator movies. Like, my goodness, how is he figuring out where he is everywhere he goes? This is before cell phones. This is before emails. This is before uh, phones, uh, uh, camera phones. Saul is on top of this man. His, his intelligence is like the CIA. Right? He's got drones and stuff following David. It's like Will Smith and uh, what's that movie? Anyway, stay focused. All right. <laughs> Right? That's the kind of scene we have. Like It's this beauty in his life, but it's also this brokenness. It's also this brokenness. But here's the thing to remember. For those 10 years that he's a fugitive, that he's on the run, he's still in God's will. He's right where God wants him to be. And so many of us, when we think about our life and where we are and our own brokenness and our own disappointments, We have this wish list and this fantasy and this dream, and we, in our minds, this is the way life is supposed to be, and we see it. Yes, we see God's hand and his provision and his kindness towards us, but we look at the brokenness and the pain in our stories and the mishaps, and we think, like, man, is God with me? Is God for me? Am I, where's God supposed to be? I just want to tell you, don't ever judge God's love for you and God's will for your life based upon the valley that you find yourself in. God loves you. If you've repented and trusted Christ, he loves you. He is for you. He disciplines those he loves. When we get off course, and even if we're not off course, he allows trials to come into our lives to shape us, to mature us, to make us steadfast, James 1 and 3 says. To give us spiritual muscle and endurance and, and staying power. Don't ever judge God's love for you and his care for you by the valley that you're in. That's what Eugene Peterson writes. He says, David is doing everything right when Saul tries to kill him. He has brought healing to Saul's troubled spirit through his playing of music, and he has killed the Philistine giant, ending this constant irritation for Israel's army and also quieting the turbulence in the troubled king. David is just what the nation needs. He is just what the king needs, he seems to have done both kinds of work modestly and unassumingly without showing off for doing these good works. He nearly gets himself killed. Perhaps you're here today. You're like, Lord, I'm doing the best I can 
to be faithful to you, but it seems like Satan is after me and my life is falling apart. May you remember, just like David, that as God's children, he allows us to go through storms and to trials, not to to kill us, but to mold us and to make us and to prepare us for his future glory. This is David was being prepared for a future kingship. God is preparing you for a future glory. Romans chapter 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Suffering is a part of life. James Wright, to those who are in dispersia, uh, to the church, in, in James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, not if you face trials of various kinds, but when you face trials of various kinds. And a lot of us, we, are, we flake out when trials come. We flake out when we're in a valley. We, we are constantly questioning God's love for us, God's care for us, because things aren't going our way. And I don't mean to offend you. Actually, yes, I do if this offends you, but God is calling you today to toughen up. He's calling me today to toughen up, to look up, and allow the Spirit to, to mature us and to grow us and to see that pain and suffering is a part of, a, of being a human because we live in a fallen world. As a result of the fall, Adam's sin, but also that it's a part of being a Christian. And that even our pain and, our, and our, our suffering is purposeful as he is conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. He say, well, you don't understand, Pastor Jamal. I've been, I've been suffering. I've been going through this pain for two days. I'm like, yeah, I know it's hard. Two days of suffering is tough. And after day one, sometimes I'm ready to tap out. You're like, no, two days, Pastor Jamal. I've been going through this for two years. Two years I've been suffering this. I'm like, yes, it's hard. Two years, that's a long time to suffer. But what if God calls you to go through it for 10 years? Will you trust him? Are you willing to be a a, a fugitive, so to speak, for 10 years? Do you believe in the finished work of Christ? Do you believe that there is a future glory? Do you believe that we are sojourners, strangers, just passing through? And as American Christians, as Christians who are here in America, sometimes because of our culture and because of this, this, this theme of prosperity and you can be whatever you want to be, we, we kind of flake out early on and we tape out or we kind of tap out in our trials and our tribulations because we believe that we're supposed to be and do whatever we want to do where the fact of the matter is, is that's a privilege that in a perspective that only very few people in the world can have in, in light of, of Christendom. Like us gathering here right now, sitting in comfortable seats, listening to great music, hearing an okay preacher, like that's a privilege that only very few people get to do on a Sunday. Like most of the world, most of those who are following Jesus, like they're reading Bibles in secret and meeting at awkward times so that their government won't see them and risking death just by mentioning the name of Jesus and living in obscurity and poverty. And the Holy Spirit equips them and encourages them. Many of them have more joy than we have. Why? Because they're experiencing Christ and the Holy Spirit and his power in in such a powerful way because they 
they have been captured by the beauty of Jesus and all they have is Christ. And David here, he is broken. He, he sees his beauty of, in, God, in, his, in his life, but he also sees his brokenness. His, his life is on the run. And, and look at how God uses his brokenness. When we read the Psalter, when we read the book of, of, of Psalms, we see what God produced out of his brokenness. You see that God was crushing him, but that we benefit from that crushing. We are able to to read those Psalms and to receive encouragement now and, and remind ourselves that we are not an anomaly, that we are not the first people to suffer and feel abandoned by God. And yet we read the Psalms and we see David constantly calling us to praise the Lord, calling his soul to praise the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then we look at the, the subscriptions of, of those Psalms and we see that David wrote this while he's on a run from Saul. David wrote this while he was in the cave of Adullam. David is writing and pouring out his heart to God, and he's being crushed. And at the time, he, he doesn't know why, and he's crying out to God, Lord, how long? My enemies, they are encamped around me. But what is God doing? God is producing fruit and character in David's life, but he's also allowing David's life to be a witness for those around him and those to come after him. God is calling us to, to leave the dance floor and to get up on the balcony. God is inviting us today to see, to get a different perspective and to see, because sometimes when you're on the dance floor, you don't know who you're next to. You don't know what's going on, but, but when you get up on the balcony, you can see a different perspective and say, oh, man, it looks a lot different from up here. The Lord is inviting you in your own life to, to get up on the balcony through this text and to see that even through the brokenness that there is purpose and that his plans are purposeful and they will not be thwarted. So we need to trust and submit to him. Isn't that the issue here with Saul? Like we can see it, but Saul probably couldn't see it. The tighter Saul tried to control his life and his narrative the more self-destructive and embittered he became and the more his life spent out. Like what if Saul, after that encounter with Samuel, had just laid his life before the Lord and said, you know what, Lord, I blew it. I lost my job. But Lord, help me not to lose you. Help me not to lose you. What if, what if the Spirit allowed, had allowed Saul and Saul had submitted to the Spirit in such a way that he just began to live with his life with open hands and say, Lord, I've made a muck of my life and I've tried to control it and I've tried to manipulate things and I've tried to make things happen. I've built monuments to myself, but Lord, take control of my life. But no, instead he doubles down and he tries to make things happen. That's what we see in his text and he's spinning out. His heart becomes jealous. He becomes double-minded. James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways becomes moody. But you compare Saul with Jonathan and you see a difference, don't you? Jonathan is living with an open-handedness and a submission. Jonathan should be, in a carnal sense, just as embittered as Saul. I mean, all the other king's sons, they retain the, the kingship when their fathers are no longer king, 
Why is God raising up David? Why hasn't God given me that anointing? Why can't I be as victorious in battle? Jonathan is submitting and he's saying, you know what? God has placed David in my life. He's given him victory. And rather than fight against that and try to get David killed, I'm going to just do the right thing and show up. What are you holding on to? What are you, what are you trying to control? What's that thing that if God doesn't give it to you and if he doesn't allow it to happen, you're going to make happen? Some of you are in relationships right now you shouldn't be in because you're trying to make it happen. And what's controlling that fear? Fear of being alone, fear of being broke, fear of not moving up in a company, fear of not reaching your goals. Now that fear is really an obsession. And what's that obsession with? That obsession is it's with self. But what if we... What if we cried out to God together as a church and said, Lord, help us to live with open hands. Help us to not manipulate our life. Help us to see that, that your plans will not be thwarted, that you are a sovereign God, but you're also a, a loving God. And you're also a God that knows what's best. And how do we know that God is for us and that God is loving as well as God is suffering? We know this because we can look to his cross. And when we look to the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can see that God God is not my enemy, that God is for me. And though what he's planned for me is good and it works together with his, with his ultimate plan and that I get to play a role, me, me, sinful me. And that he set his affection on me, not because I'm so good or, or because of my good works or because of my intellect or because of the way I, I, I look or my ability to get things done. No, he loves me in spite of me for Romans 5 and 8 tells me that while I was yet a sinner, that Christ came and he died for me. So now I see things in the way that I should see it. I really don't deserve anything. What I deserve is, is death and anything that I receive outside of that is a, is a gift from him. And I'm able to live with a gratitude and a deep appreciation for him and a trust that says, you know what's best. And not only do you know what's best, but you care about my joy. And you're able to give me joy. My grandmother used to say, a joy that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. A joy that's not predicated on what people think about me. A joy that's not predicated on what my bank account says. A joy that's not even predicated on, on how I feel, but it's predicated on a reality that in Christ I am loved and I am his. God's plans won't be thwarted. And some of you, you're living in fear today thinking that it will be thwarted. Listen, you don't have to, watch my phrasing here. You don't have to kiss up to your boss because you fear not having a job. You don't have to make ethical uh, decisions that don't, unethical decisions that don't please God because you have to uh, continue to, to provide for your family. Your boss is not the one who controls your income. Your father does. Cattle on a thousand hill belongs to his. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded upon the waters. He established it upon the seas. God is in control. Satan meant for evil, God meant for the good. Not he turned it to the good. He meant it for the good. God's got you. 
shepherd. And finally, let's look at God's provision for, for David. I mean, God's provision for David in this chapter is almost hilarious. I mean, it's diverse and it's sufficient. God is providing for David. In the midst of his valley, in the midst of his darkness, God is present as he said he would be, and he is providing. And in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your valley, God is present and he is providing. And what we ought to do is to pray and say, Lord, open my eyes to see your presence and to see your provision. David is on the run as a fugitive, but God is steps ahead of Saul, like eternal steps ahead of Saul. And every time Saul thinks he has David, the Spirit works in David's life. God provides David with a friend, with Jonathan, and Jonathan has his back, and Jonathan has the kind of inroads. He's in the back scene with his father Saul, and God is using that to protect David. God provides him with a wife that loves him more than her father's uh, evil. And that's ride or die. She's like, no matter what happens, I got you, babe. I'm with you. Where that basket at? You're going down a window. He's providing. Not only is he proud of it with a friend and, and McCall, but soldiers who are loyal to him and who love him. He's providing him with wisdom and like matrix type moves to get out the way when Saul throws a spear. Like that spear could have hit his heart instead of hit a wall. Why? It's because, is it because David just is so creative? No, David writes in the Psalms. He said, you give me the feet of a hind, the feet of a deer to escape. Then God just messes us up in the story. Go home and read it. Saul gets close to David twice, probably has him. And all of a sudden, Saul goes to church. He's overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, and he just begins to prophesy. Everybody's like, what is going on? He can't stop talking about God. This goes crazy. He even takes off his clothes and is naked preaching. And David's like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> it's hilarious the way that God is providing. Listen, here's my point. God is not providing, just providing that way for, for David. He's doing the same for you. I know you're in the dark season. You may be in a dark place, but if you look back over your life, God's provided for you in hilarious ways, in spite of you. And, and when our hearts say, no, no, God, he ought to, I deserve it. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with you and your delusion. You don't understand how holy God is. You don't understand who he is. You, you're finite. One preacher said, tonight you're tiny. God is big, immortal. So as we look at David's life and we look at our own life, can you see God's hand in your own life? What's fascinating about this text is is Jonathan. I mean, let's read this slowly together as we come to a close. Verse, chapter 18, verse 1 says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with the tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I mean, this is an amazing relationship that, that David and Jonathan has together. And there's probably points in all of our lives where we think and we wish that, man, if only I had someone like Jonathan, if only I had someone who understood me, if only I had someone who would go to bat for me, if only I had someone who would, who would get in the mix with me and protect me. All of us desire Jonathan. And here's the good news of the gospel. If you're in Christ, you have one who is greater than Jonathan. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. But in Christ, we have also received a covenant. And a covenant was signed, sealed, and delivered with his blood. You have one who is always for you. You have one who loved you so much that he laid aside. He laid aside equality with God. He did not see it as something to be grasped, but set it aside. And he, like Jonathan, took off, proverbially speaking, those clothes and put on human flesh. He came down 42 generations. He lived as a human being. One theologian said, God, Jesus becoming a man is like a a man becoming a roach. He emptied himself. He limited himself to, to space and to time, and he allowed himself to be mistreated and bruised and and crucified for you so that you would receive his clothes and he took your clothes, though he who knew no sin, he became sin that you might be the righteousness of God. You have at one who is greater than Jonathan. And guess what? He is for you. He is on the right-hand side of God, interceding with the Father for you. And he loves you. And every Sunday we celebrate this covenantal relationship that we have with Jesus by taking a meal together called communion. And this meal reminds us that even if we are in a valley, that gives us a, a, a real invitation to remember God's faithfulness. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup, says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and, and, and drink this cup, Christian, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. We take this to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to run to Jesus, to place your faith and trust in him. You will not find a better advocate, a better friend. The Bible says there's one mediator between God the Father and us, and it is Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can have a relationship with the creator of this world and the sustainer of this world is through his son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus and your good works. It's not Jesus and Hinduism. It's not Jesus and Buddhism. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus only. And you come to him not strong, but weak, admitting 
that you cannot escape your own future and fate and your own strength. That your future is wrapped up in God's hands. That peace only comes from a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says to receive Jesus, you make a conscious decision to turn and to trust him. To confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you've never done that today, I want to give you an invitation to do that. To enter into a friendship like no other. In just a second, we're going to take communion. Those of you in the front half of the room, come to the front. Back half of the room, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.